everyone, and welcome to the TransAsia in the World podcast. I'm Galen Poor, and I'm here with my colleague, Sam Tominski. Hi, everyone. Today, we're interviewing Felix Jimenez-Bota. He's a recent PhD graduate from Boston College, and he's right now a visiting assistant professor at Boston College, as well as an adjunct instructor at Babson College uh, in the Department of History. Welcome, Felix. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, he focuses on German, Latin American, and Caribbean history in the 19th and 20th century. And his dissertation was on the history of human rights activism in Germany during the 1970s and 80s, focusing on their attention to political violence in Latin America. As part of our series on political violence, Felix's work explains how humanitarianism became one way to address political violence during the Cold War. And he shows the hidden political dimensions of that movement. So uh, we're very excited to talk to Felix today. So for your own work, how do you define human rights and humanitarianism? I, th- I see human rights really as a, as a broad political discourse with a humanitarian and depoliticizing overtones that enable manifold actors to take the moral high ground in their advocacy for allies uh, abroad. So. I see it as a political project that need not be necessarily solely based on altruism. So, I mean, the, the standard view of humanitarianism is that uh, you have uh, altruistic characters that generally care for the welfare of uh, people in need around the world, regardless of their you know, identity, political, uh, direct uh, political views, or race, religion, etc. That has been the, the nature of humanitarianism since it emerges around the 19th century. There, are, there are some arguments on that. Some argue that it emerges in the First World War. Bruno Cabanas or uh, Michael Barnett you know, sees it in the in the 19th century as a religious project of renewal as well. And, and it is all of this, these things. Um, so I see human rights uh, as a far more political project. Uh, but it does, it does have to mask this, uh, this politics with a language that, that sounds and, and looks humanitarian in many ways. Before we go forward, what would be an example of a human right that would maybe be shared amongst... I guess how should I put this? What would be a human rights specifically that maybe these more relig- religious interpretations and the more politicized view that you would take would share? If there's something like to give us a, a, a something very concrete that would bind those two together other than rhetoric. Let me say, for example, the right to asylum. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, I mean, not all humanitarians believe that uh, political asylum or, or asylum period migration is a good thing because it saps their their support at home. Uh, one of the points of humanitarianism is to uh, help people live where they are at the moment and make their lives uh, better there. Um, the the thing about 1970s uh, human rights activists, for example, is that they saw political exile as the only way to save people at uh, under threat by uh, military dictatorship. So. They actively campaign to bring these people to West Germany, and you know this is significant because um, 
up to that point, uh, political asylum in West Germany had only been granted to exiles from Eastern Europe, which were fleeing communist regimes. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, like, at least for this Chile and Argentina solidarity movement, it is directed at people who are mostly of a left-wing persuasion and who are fleeing right-wing anti-communist regimes. Yeah. Other Latin American countries can, can offer political asylum. Billy Brandt himself is... is, is, is questions this uh, this emphasis on political asylum. He says, well, perhaps we, we should just give them money and, and have them stay at, at, at in countries that, that it's easiest for them to integrate. Um, and, but I mean, uh, his social democratic base is very critical of that because they say, well, you were a political asylee in Scandinavia under the Nazis. And he was. Uh, so Billy, Billy Brandt uh, had fled to Norway. And then when the Nazis invaded Norway in 1940, he actually joins the resistance and then has to escape to Sweden for a while. So he is uh, perhaps uh, almost the right figure at the right time. He is, uh, I guess, committed to a left-wing politics of sorts, uh, which no chancellor before him or no chancellor since has been in, in, in West Germany. So this is how this asylum program for Chileans comes into being. All right, now we're going to hear the first part of Felix's recording. For him, human rights activists paid too little attention on inequality in the 1970s and too much attention on creating a floor on atrocities. Therefore, human rights are perfectly compatible with market fundamentalism and are unable to confront its ravages. My dissertation question this view of 1970s human rights activism. Studying the Chile and Argentina solidarity movement in 70s West Germany, I found that those who became involved in human rights activism for Latin Americans pursued traditional political goals alongside their human rights advocacy. Their Chilean cause in particular became such a popular one because almost every political group in the country found someone they could identify with in the Chilean drama. West Germans identified with the political project of democratic socialism, with the political parties, from the communists to the Christian Democrats, and even with particular individuals. And this is why they became involved in human rights activism, not because they abandoned their previously held political commitments. My first case study is the New Left. West German New Leftists saw the repression in Chile as the resurgence of fascism, an unholy alliance between the CIA and reactionary soldiers bound to eliminate the left. They feared that this would happen in West Germany as well, and they understood their political solidarity with Chilean leftists also as a defense of civil liberties in Germany. Many actually hoped for a revolutionary uprising in Chile, but gave up on this idea after the first exiles arrived and informed them of the true situation in the country. The arrival of Chilean refugees transformed the Chile Solidarity Movement, which was a loose association of many different political groups that comprised not only the new left, but also the traditional left with the social democrats and trade unionists or communists who remained loyal to East Germany. Through their culture, Chileans enabled the Chile Solidarity Movement to expand this message to the broader population. New leftists and exiles rejected humanitarianism, so they settled on something they called practical solidarity. Essentially, the Chile Solidarity Movement took 
to provide funds for soup kitchens, children's relief, pro-asylum advocacy, etc. These were actions that resembled humanitarian relief, but for them, they had the clear goal of maintaining the political project of Chilean democratic socialism alive. And is, um, so is there, so I guess my question here is there's a lot of different types of, uh, different, not different types, just different international conflicts happening sort of simultaneously yes. during this moment of the 60s and 70s. So if we take Vietnam, for example, yes. um, it's a mess. Um, and I, and uh, I'm not going to ask you to go into all the details of the actual conflict in Vietnam, but I guess do these social democrats, is there something unique about about the Latin America problem, about Chile, that really gets them um, heated up and willing to make a serious push? Like, do they do similar things for Vietnam? Um, I would also ask, sort of, in the same, in a similar sort of way, the United Red Army has a sort of sister organization yes. in Japan, so they're already linked up with East Asia as well. Um, I'm wondering if you see sort of a broader, did, I guess, did these actors themselves see what they were doing as a truly global thing that touched Latin America, East Asia, Africa, or were they very much um, focused on these, um, I don't even know what to call it, these low, I guess these regional problems in very specific yeah, areas? Yeah, I think it's, it is difficult to discern a grand strategy in, in this, uh, just because perhaps the way the, fi the, way the, the files are arranged or... But I haven't found this uh, a grand strategy to to become reengaged with the the world in many many ways. Uh, and and in terms of Vietnam, it's, it's an interesting question because towards the late seventies, actually, you have thirty six thousand boat people that receive refuge in West Germany. But this is not something that is actually planned um, by the government. There, there are there are other books on this topic but uh what i know about it is that for once the united states asked asks germany to receive some refugees uh mainly Hmong refugees uh, that had supported the american uh, occupation but uh the, the american war effort but there's also um actually individual uh, states in germany germany had, had has a system of bundesländer or länder uh, the states and then the minister presidents of these states have a lot of leniency in uh, deciding about migration policy. So actually, some conservative, uh, um, uh, the conservative minister president of uh, Lower Saxony, I believe, is uh, Albrecht. He, you know, sees the Vietnamese boat people as victims of communism. So he uh, essentially makes it easier for them to to come to to west germany although later by the early 80s this also has a, a nativist backlash so it has to be phased out slowly so in 1973 there's nothing of the sort going on so the, the chilean case is really unique and pathbreaking you could say in this sense in that as, as a as a i mean there had been migration before obviously but it's a seen as a as a sweet generis case this is a, seen as a as a rescue of democrats so for the social democrats they see themselves they're saving people who yes had been committed to communism or were committed to communism to to left-wing ideals but they had not tried to implant their ideas by force they had actually waged uh, political campaigns the president Allende had been elected by slim margins to be sure uh, and the social democratic party had 
supported with the, the agenda regime. I'll, I'll be more more limited. Uh, the social democrats in West Germany are still, after all, committed to a capitalist world order, and they uh, the encroachment, for example, of the agenda regime on foreign ter- of, of foreign uh, investment or especially the property of uh, German Chileans. Um, so they, there had been some criticism, although not nearly not nearly enough from the conservative point of view. So this is this asylum program obviously encounters a lot of resistance from the conservative uh, Christian Democrats. They see this as a, uh, I mean, some sensationalist media sees this uh, as some sort of uh, plot to subvert the the Federal Republic and, and bring Latin American revolutionaries. I mean, there's a moral panic of sorts going on. I mean, newspapers see uh, Cubans everywhere after this, uh, coming in as Chileans to try to stage a Castro-like revolution in West <laughs> Germany of sorts. I mean, it sounds right. ludicrous from this, uh, from from our perspective, but I mean, this is really the the, the, wow. the way the discussion is being waged. And why does human rights emerge in, in the 1970s? That that I agree with with Samuel Moore that something changes, something substantially. Uh, changes in the in the 1970s, and I think it is it is this way of having to to frame solidarity, or explicit political solidarity, as a human rights, as a, in a humanitarian vein, to be able to. When humanitarianism is a reaction to political violence, how can it stay neutral? Uh, is it doomed to be politicized once it decides to start? Uh, helping political victims. I mean, e- even the example of granting uh, asylum to refugees, right. you know, fleeing the Nazis. How can you? How how can you keep that kind of political neutrality that you're kind of saying is lost in humanitarian movements in this time period? Yeah. No. I mean, that's. I mean, this is something that. Then uh, that that's why it's done under the guise of the United Nations under non-governmental organizations. Um, so it's, it's not explicitly done under, under a specific flag. And it's, it's exp- framed explicitly as um, addressing the needs of those uh, most hurt. I mean, that is exactly why. And this is, uh, yeah. this is why <laughs> in, it's, it's problematic for scholars of humanitarianism when in 2003, um, the invasion of Iraq, there seems to be close uh, cooperation between humanitarian organizations and the the American army, uh, which did happen. So humanitarians are always in in this struggle, uh, protecting themselves while trying to protect the the needy. Uh, Human rights activists are explicitly against a certain party and a conflict. Uh, And they don't say that, especially Amnesty International. They make their creed of appearing neutral, for example, uh, but in when they criticize the Argentinian regime for torture, even though they say, "Well, we're, we're not taking sides," they're obviously taking a side against the torturing party, and right. the Argentinian yeah. government sees it as them taking sides. This is why they charge them as uh, as being uh, communist sympathizers. The Soviet Union will do the same thing with Amnesty International. So, I mean, this is why Amnesty can can kind of say, well, we're attacked by, by both sides, then that means we're, we're, we're gold. Mm, yeah. and, 
and obviously it's it's it's, it's not obviously the case. It's, it's it's it is a complicated. It is a it is a complicated situation because amnesty, as I show, this is this is why my fourth chapters is about. Amnesty is an organization made up of many different individuals and groups. It is an organization that wants to be universal, but it's also grassroots. So that makes it unique in many ways. Uh, other human rights organizations do not have this system of, of little uh, national, not just national sections, they, they do, but, but this grassroots groups organized uh, five or six people writing letters or becoming engaged for certain detainees. So the adoption system, for example, this is very unique to Amnesty International. And, you know, their, their creed is really to, to adopt in the 1970s, to adopt uh, a political prisoner from, from Eastern, from the communist bloc, from Western countries and from the global South. And they do that explicitly in order to free themselves from having to, you know, to, to avoid uh, being lumped in a, in, a, in a certain political camp. But many of the people that join Amnesty International in, in the 1970s in West Germany are fairly left-wing, or uh, at least are, are committed to, to left-wing political causes. One out of ten is perhaps the conservative, as, as uh, a book published in 1976 about from... You know, they had access to Amnesty's files, reveals. And, and I show that, that a lot of the excitement about, about getting engaged for Chile, although it's normally done under the guise of uh, political neutrality and, and humanitarian sentiment, it's, it's actually done because they, they sympathize with the, with the goals of democratic socialism, especially of the Chilean kind, which had been done without significant bloodshed. I mean, no, no bloodshed at all, and had been done in a happy uh, Latin American way uh, with red wine and, and, and pastries, as uh, Salvador Allende had, had mentioned in 1970. And, and then <laughs> for it to end so in such a bloody, you know, violent way was profoundly... Uh, um, but then they realized that uh, this is what the first chapter kind of shows. There is a realization uh, in 74... 75 that there's not going to be any armed insurrection they're not going to be able to topple pinochet in any any way and as a matter of fact this is something that chilean exiles tell them pretty straight up i mean there are some exceptions there are some members of the movement of the revolutionary left that want, that want to do something in uh, uh revolutionary uh, ways in, in, in West Germany, but, but they don't get very far. Um, but the, the broad mass... Mm. At least as far as getting support from Amnesty International, you mean? Uh, at least as getting support, uh, getting support for, for deliveries of weapons and things like that. This is, this is something that, oh, that I some okay. members okay. of the... Yeah, yeah, Amnesty International is probably not going to do that, yeah. No, no. <laughs> uh, and, and as a matter of fact, most Germans are not interested in doing that either. Right. And the mass of Ch Chilean exiles are not interested in doing that either. I mean, that is the interesting part, that the, the experience of, of torture, the experience of, of being imprisoned without due process for many months and then escaping by, you know, by, by sheer luck in many ways, uh, they decided to kill the other, not you. Um, 
and escape into a safe country you know, is profoundly sobering. So they want to engage themselves more productively, I guess. Uh, and then they call it practical solidarity. So still solidarity, you know, still left wing, but but then they, so they they start to do things that resemble humanitarianism very closely. Start gathering funds to feed kids in Chile to provide them with blankets and things like this um, under the guise of practical solidarity. So this is the way for the left to engage in humanitarianism without losing sight of, of just solidarity. Now let's hear the second part of Felix's talk. Social Democrats and trade unionists whose relationship with the social democratic-led government was particularly close, also turned to rights talk. With the clear imperative of saving the lives of trade unionists and persecuted leftists with whom they sympathize, the Federation of German Trade Unions limited its travel grants to workers, and while they called their engagement humanitarian, they reasoned that their actions were political because it ensured the continued existence of trade unionists, of trade unions in Chile by keeping trade unionists alive. Social Democratic Women, for example, founded the Kinderhilfe Chile, which is translated as Chilean Children's Aid. It's an agency in West Germany. Uh, and they argued that they had humanitarian aims. But in reality, the files of the Kinderhilfe reveal a very different story. Um, they held solidarity meetings with high-ranking socialist politicians from Chile, and they understood the engagement as an act of solidarity with the families of the victims of the military regime. At the same time, you have second-wave feminists who honed in especially on the abuses perpetrated against women. Uh, I quote one feminist solidarity group that was named Women Aiding Women. They claim that Chilean women are victimized as political and racial undesirables were in the concentration camps of the Third Reich." End of quote. This leftist and social democratic embrace of human rights cannot be disentangled from the domestic context of 1970s West Germany. The administration of Willy Brandt, a center-left coalition of social democrats and liberals, with a former anti-fascist resistance fighter uh, as the chancellor, was very supportive of some of their demands. Brandt's government froze economic aid and accepted 2,500 refugees from Chile. Um, the government financed their tickets and provided government funds for the lodging, language courses, etc. These were the first refugees ever that West Germany accepted that did not come from the communist bloc. As a matter of fact, many of them were communists and socialists. Following the end of Brandt's tenure, in April 1974, he was forced to resign due to an East German spy in his inner circle. Helmut Schmidt, a fellow social democrat, undertook a rightward shift in West Germany's international priorities. The government now restricted the admission of asylum seekers and normalized relations with Latin American military regimes. Left-wing politics were stigmatized in the middle of 1970s West Germany as the war between the state and the left-wing terrorist group Red Army Faction heated up. Thousands of suspected sympathizers uh, were banned from taking government jobs, which at that time included being a teacher, a railway worker, 
or working in the telecommunications or the post office. In response to grassroots human rights activism, therefore, the government developed its own vision of human rights protection that emphasized discrete diplomatic overtures on behalf of selected individuals. The head of the Social Democratic Party's Working Group of Human Rights claimed that, I quote, engagement for human rights needs to be free from salutary, end of quote. By using human rights rhetoric, activists could engage with state officials. For example, at the height of the Red Army faction uh, war with the German state in 1976-77, the Chile Solidarity Movement was actually able to get the West German government to accept members of the armed group Movimiento de la Izquierda Revolucionaria, Movement of the, Inter of the Revolutionary Left, a Chilean armed group, using precisely human rights argumentation. Uh, one high-ranking social democratic politician argued that, quote, not every mayor member in Chile was or is a revolutionary criminal, end of quote. This was Hans Koschnick, who was the mayor of the city of Bremen, actually. The embrace of human rights talk by left-wing West German activists was mediated by the shifting attitudes towards internationalism within the social democratic and free democratic coalition that governed West Germany from 1969 to 1982. The Christian Democratic Union, or CDU, which is best known today for being Angela Merkel's political party, strenuously opposed the asylum provisions for Chileans. But they also turned against the Pinochet regime in the mid-1970s. They did not do so because they had a humanitarian epiphany. On the contrary, some high-ranking Christian Democrats understood that in order to criticize communist states for their abuses, they also needed to critique right-wing ones. Moreover, Pinochet's persecution of the Chilean Christian Democratic Party, whom the CDU hoped would guide Chile along a path similar to post-war West Germany, prompted them to highlight the military regime's human rights abuses. The Bavarian Christian Democrats disagreed. They welcomed Pinochet's neoliberal reforms, rejected critiques of it, and actually drew up projects to prop the Chilean military regime. This is the time where really Amnesty expands tremendously from being a fairly little right, known right, organization right. by the early 70s to getting a Nobel Peace Prize in 1977. So uh, this is and this is how they do it. They, they, they collaborate unofficially with, with groups such as the Chile committees, or perhaps also in Japan, um, I don't know, um, but only in regards to this uh, thing. And actually uh, a member a former member of Amnesty International in the 1970s told me, yes, well, I mean, we, uh, they used to work uh, with some hardline communists to get communists out of uh, Chilean jails. And some of them would come to the Amnesty office in Frankfurt. And then they would see uh, some sort of document criticizing the Soviet Union. And they would say, well, what, what is this? And they'd say, well, what, this is uh, what we believe in. If you want to work with us, you you were with us. If you don't, you don't. So, right. I mean, they needed amnesty. It wasn't the other way around. Yeah, I wanted you to say something more because I haven't heard the, this comparison in depth before. You were talking about like socialist internationalism and also, you know, Maoist third worldism and solidarity setting themselves up as like leftist alternatives <laughs> to human rights and humanitarianism. Can you say more about how those functioned in, in the 70s and 80s? And why weren't there or were there uh, communist countries trying to reach out to victims in Chile 
of you know political violence with their own different set of rhetoric yes there is there is there is one uh, that is i guess profoundly problematic for the chilean uh, the chile committees or, or every, anybody who is interested or worried about chile and, and west germany which is that china finds very quick accommodation with the pinochet regime mm. In 1973, uh, they are, uh, besides Romania, it's the only communist country that is that still maintains an embassy there, and uh, you know there's there are, there are constant rumors of lavish dinners thrown by the Chinese ambassador for member regime, and this really becomes a major problem for Maoist groups in West Germany that are actively engaged in Chile solidarity. Because yeah. uh, the other non-Maoist Trotskyists and and the unaffiliated and obviously the hardline communists, they say, well, China is in cahoots with the Chileans. So how do you, how can you defend Maoism? It's become corrupt. And essentially what the Maoists in West Germany are for to say is, well, you know, Chile is also, you know, an underdeveloped country. Their goal is to defend themselves against imperialism from the United States and from the Soviet Union. Okay. So yeah. uh, this is Mao, Mao's three-world theory uh, that they apply to Chile. And obviously, uh, not even, even many Maoists are not persuaded by it. So, mm. and this effectually, this is really the beginning of the death of, of West German Maoism. Uh, the last major Maoist associations uh, are, are defeated or... I mean, not defeated, but they they begin to collapse in the early '80s, also because of this of China's turn towards neoliberalism uh, mm. by the late 1970s. And Chile is one of the first instances where uh, it is, becomes clear that uh, Chinese involvement in the in the third world is no longer for revolution, but uh, for an accommodation with the global capitalist regime. And this is you know, fairly evident in the, by, by 1975, 76, that was Germany. One extension of your, your argument about the politicization of humanitarianism, uh, the, the claim of neutrality is a false one. And there's uh, like Western countries are just using it maybe to seek some political advantage or uh, using the, the cloak of humanitarianism to seek their own ends. And, and that's actually the point that the PRC has been making for a long time when the West uh, comes in with claims of protecting human rights, as has the Russian Federation. Uh, so how do you how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I, I guess I guess my argument is not as in concept as encompassing as saying, well, you know, humanitarianism is just corrupt uh, because it is being used for for political goals goals all, all the time. Humanitarianism has its own politics, and it's always being contested. And yeah, I mean, it is it, that primarily humanitarians are from the West, and because these are the countries that have the most money, and that they don't want, they, they don't, they, they 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 try not to work with states as much. So, uh, in many ways, uh, Russia and China have emerged as the most prominent defenders of sovereignty. Uh, in the world of today, but this yeah. is also because they themselves don't want to be criticized uh, for their own violations of basic rights. And yes, I mean, the most 
prominent argument, uh, one of the most prominent arguments of, of 1970s human rights activists is that human rights trump sovereignty. And mm. uh, there has been the argument of humanitarian for a long time that uh, you can't rely on your sovereignty to protect you from, uh, I guess, for killing or murdering your own population. You know, as early as the 19th century, uh, you have Midlothian uh, discourses, I think, was by, by Gladstone. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, he's criticizing in the 1870s, I think, the massacres against Bulgarians in the Ottoman Empire, actively campaigning for, for some sort of war uh, to attack the Ottoman Empire. So, I mean, this is this is an old argument that sovereignty should not try. Yeah. And of course, you know, when we, when we look at 19th century imperialism, yes, they use moral language often within a very racist discourse of civilization versus barbarism that they also employed in order to colonize and subject many, many uh, people to many peoples to, to imperialism, which was often very bloody because you know, they, they needed, they had revolts and rebellions uh, and they, especially in India, there were massive famines in the, in the, in the late 19th century uh, due to British uh, policies in regards to, to wheat and supply. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, uh, China has, especially China, has always been very attentive to this type of humanitarian talk because they were themselves the target of uh, Western imperialism in the 19th century in particular. Um, but at the same time, uh, there, is, there is a present need uh, of, of, of people who are subjected to, to massive outrages in the name of, of sovereignty. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you square the circle, so to speak? I mean, the, the, the challenge yeah, right. of, of yeah, Russia yeah. and China is that uh, the West should not get involved outside the West. Uh, but they themselves want to become involved in their own way, which is to have uh, private diplomatic deals with, with countries and not uh, basic rights. Or, I mean, not even labor rights or anything like that, right? So, uh, as far as Chinese diplomacy goes, I mean, they're, they are willing to negotiate with any country, uh, better extract of materials and, and, and resources and, and, and not really uh, pay the workers in those countries any better than a American company or a Western consortium might do. So, and the point is really to change, to change human rights discourse in the West, which has been, as Samuel Moyne has recently argued in his book, Not Enough, uh, that has been in many ways limited to its protection against uh, outrageous atrocitarianism and has not looked at um, inequality and creating actually a ceiling on inequality, which is what he believes is the most pressing concern of, of, of the world today um, in terms of economic inequality. So, uh, so the challenge would, would be that. Um, we, we, we should look at human rights uh, broader, 
and definitely we should we should have uh, ways that don't involve war to uh, solve human rights violations, which make those human rights violations usually worse or create new sources of, of human rights violations, as happens in humanitarian interventions, as we have seen in the last years, uh, and develop a, a better system of holding uh, atrocities, uh, atrocitarians, genocidaires uh, accountable, just by having a rule of law or international system of, of, of jurisdiction that uh, doesn't just focus on uh, human rights violators in Africa, but also holds uh, people who commit human rights violations in the West uh, to account, which has not happened, uh, unfortunately, uh, with our current uh, system of international law. Okay, well, thanks for joining us today. Check out some sources related to today's topics at our website, transasiapod.wordpress.com, or you can find us on Twitter at transasiapod. Join with us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Kat Randall. Thanks so much for joining us today, Felix. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. See you next time.